0: What a wonderful blessing it is to be here tonight to, we, to continue this uh, gospel meeting and this series on the life of Jesus Christ, on getting to know the real Jesus, hearing his story, learning those things, those details about his life and who he is that hopefully can help each and every one of us, no matter where we are in life, where our relationship with God is. It's always important that we look to Jesus. And so yesterday in our series of studies, we started out by talking about the fact that Jesus is eternal, that he has always been, that he was not created at the time in which he came down to this earth, but he is an eternal being. He was with God, he God there from the beginning. And tonight we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is God made flesh and that he did in fact come down in human form. And we're going to begin looking at the details of his life tonight. So I want to start by going back to John chapter 1 and verse 14, which you'll recall in the first three verses there, John talks about the fact that Jesus was the Word, that He was God, that He was with God. Verse 14, John says, "...and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." And so the Word became flesh, Jesus became flesh, and this is what we're going to start looking at tonight. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in Him, Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so as Jesus comes down in human form, He maintained His Godship, His power of God, His, his being God, but also became fully human to experience life here as you and I do. So we ended last night by talking about the fact that an angel came to Mary and told her that conceived within her was this eternal king of kings, this savior, this messiah. And then that an angel came to Joseph and told him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, that that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Ghost, and that he would save his people from their sins. And so we pick up the story in Luke, the second chapter. As the Bible says here, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this is one of the most popular stories. In our world, in our country, in our society, people recognize about Jesus, and that is his birth. But I want to talk to you about a few details about this birth that you may or may not be familiar with. But as we take a deep dive into some of the details, it changes maybe the narrative that we think of when we hear the birth story of Jesus. So a couple of things. First of all, why were they in Bethlehem? They weren't from Bethlehem. They didn't live in Bethlehem, but they were in Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus had decided to take a census of all the Jewish people and to tax all of the Jewish people as a result of that. In order to do that, you had to go to certain checkpoints or certain places, which was based on your lineage, and in Joseph's case, he was of the lineage of David, and that checkpoint or that place where they had to register for that census and pay their taxes was Bethlehem. So that's why Joseph and Mary have made this journey. Now, contrary to what we might have in our minds, they did not show up. And Mary immediately is needing to give birth to this child. In fact, we can see it very clearly in the scriptures that it says, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Okay, So they have been in Bethlehem for a while. And then Mary gets to the point where she's about to have Jesus. Now, we see this, this nativity story in this scene and we think, Uh, She gave birth to Jesus in a barn, in a stable, because there was no room in the public hotel as they got into town, and that's not the case, most likely, of what actually happened. So that word in there at the, the end of that verse is actually the Greek word kataluma, which has the meaning of in, but also has the meaning simply of a guest room, And it's actually used, it's the same Greek word that's used when Jesus refers to the room that he and his disciples ate the Passover feast in. It's a guest room. There's a different word for inn, for a public motel or hotel as we would think of it, that's used in the story of the Good Samaritan. When that Good Samaritan brought that wounded man to the inn and he paid the innkeeper to keep him and that's a different Greek word. So it is my belief and understanding that they were not trying to stay at a public motel in this case, but they were actually in a relative's home, which would have made sense. Joseph and Mary, both being of the lineage of David, they would have had relatives, very likely, in Bethlehem. And this word in is referring to the guest room that almost all of the homes in that area of that time would have had. And I want to show you a picture, just so you can get kind of a visual of what I'm talking about here. So that top left section would be the top. It would go on top, but it's just being removed so you can see the inside version of this house. So down in the first area, there's a a, uh, downward bottom half, so to speak, of the house that's lowered. And then there's a top half that stairs lead up to. That top half is where the kitchen was, where the living quarters were. And in that bottom half, it would have been used as a main area during the day, but at night, they actually brought their animals inside and locked them safe inside the dwelling place. Their animals were valuable, they also didn't want them to be uh, experiencing the harsh elements, and so it was very, very common for them to bring their animals in, and they would have a feeding trough and a water trough in that lowered area, in the common area of their home. And then they would also have a room, which in this case, it would be on, at the top of those stairs, There was a second floor many times that would contain a guest room, an upper room. And if you recall, Jesus and his disciples ate Passover in an upper room. And that's what that was referring to. And so there would have been a upper room that was used to house guests. Now, in this case, Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem, but so is everyone else of that lineage. And so every home is packed. And so likely the verse that says there was no room for them in the inn is simply stating there was no room in the guest room in the house that they were staying it was already occupied and so mary had to come down here where the animals were kept in that lowered part of that home where there was a feeding trough and a water trough and she gave birth to jesus there and laid him in that feeding trough that manger so to the best of my knowledge and understanding that's the most likely scenario for the where and the when of jesus's birth changes it a little bit from the story that we're all used to hearing, but it's no less powerful and humble a beginning for the king of kings to have to be born next to the animals in a common peasant's home in Bethlehem. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 2 says, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came unto them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now it's interesting, the first people to hear about the birth of this Savior, this Messiah, this King of Kings, were these shepherds tending their sheep in the field. Now that begged the question in my mind, why the shepherds, right? Other than the fact that everything about Jesus' entrance into this world is humble, And shepherds are humble and and lowly in society of that time. So perhaps that's the simple reason. But there's another reason that I came across that I simply want to uh, share with you that I found interesting. But there's a man named Alfred Edersheim who lived in the 1800s. He was a Jewish scholar. And he believed that the shepherds here were the shepherds that were caring for the temple sheep in Jerusalem, the sheep that would go on to become the sacrifices that were used in the temple in Jerusalem. Bethlehem was about five and a half miles away from Jerusalem. It was very close. And according to this Jewish scholar, in the Mishnah, which is a collection of oral Jewish rules and guidelines that they followed at this time period, shepherds were not allowed to keep flo- uh, flocks of sheep in the area around Jerusalem and Bethlehem where these sheep were. In fact, they were required to keep them out in a more wilderness area. The only sheep that were allowed to be kept that near to Jerusalem and to the temple were those temple sheep that would go on to be those sacrifices. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but it is interesting to me because if these were the shepherds that were caring for the sheep that would become the sacrifices in the temple It's very fitting that they would be the ones to hear about the Lamb of God reaching the earth in human form. But nevertheless, these shepherds hear about it and this Savior that has come. And in verse 15 it says, It came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go now even into Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So these shepherds rush after hearing this message from these angels, and I'm sure that in and of itself was an amazing experience for these angels to appear before them and tell them that the king of kings has been born. And so they rush to the place where they were told they would find baby Jesus. And sure enough, there she is, Mary, holding that baby, that baby rather being in that manger, and they're witnessing these humble beginnings for this king of kings. And they go and they tell everyone about it. Now, some other people heard about the birth of Jesus and were interested in coming to see him as well. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, "...when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him." Now, these wise men, who were they and what were their purpose? Well, it's likely if they came from the east that they came either from Persia or Babylon. Now, one of the interesting things that I found here is the Babylonian connection, right? In years previous to this, the Israelites have been captured and in, in Babylon in captivity. Daniel got very, very powerful and close to the rulers of Babylon in that time. So it's very likely that the, even the religious priests and people in Babylon would have had access and knowledge of the writings of the Old Testament and Jewish law. And so these magi, these wise men, were likely priests of Babylon or Persia that were familiar with the promises and the prophecies of this coming king. And then God decides to lead them to the baby Jesus by putting a star in place to lead them there. Now, it mentions King Herod here. So I want to take a second and explain the Herods. So there's multiple Herods that we're going to see in the story of Jesus. This Herod is Herod the Great. He is the father of, of the Herod, we're going to see later on at the end of Jesus' life, where Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod. So, that Herod later in Jesus' life is the son of this Herod. This is Herod the Great, and he is ruling as king of Judea at this time, under Roman rule and with their approval, but he is the king. So, it makes sense if he is the king of the Jews at this point, and he hears that this king of kings has been born, that he would be concerned. And so, he takes these wise men and he says, Go find the boy and come back and tell me where he is because I want to worship him too, although, of course, he has ulterior motives. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, at this point, we fast-forwarded a little bit of time. So it's very likely that uh, Jesus is a few months old, even up to maybe a year old at this point that the wise men get here. One of the reasons we know that is because of the words that are used that's translated young child it's a different Greek word than is used for the word baby or newborn. Uh, This just simply means an immature child so still could have been a few months old or a year old but we know that probably within about the first year of his life is at some point when these wise men come. And they find Jesus. It says, "When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh." Now, again, with the wise men, when we hear this story and we think about this nativity story, and it doesn't really happen necessarily there at the nativity scene, right? It's probably a few months later. We also picture three wise men. I think we picture three wise men because there were three gifts that were given, but there could have been 20 wise men for all we know. That number is not given to us. An unnamed number of these Persian or Babylonian magi came and visited the child Jesus, and they brought these very expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the boy. In Matthew 2, verse 12, it says, And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And so these wise men were warned of God that Herod had ulterior motives. He didn't really want to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill him. And so they went back a different way so that they could avoid him. And then God comes to Joseph through an angel and says, You've got to get out. Go to Egypt and hide your son away because Herod's going to look to destroy him. And in Matthew 2, verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all of the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. One of the other reasons that most scholars believe Jesus was somewhere from a few months to a year old is they believe that Herod probably would have at least doubled the time frame. And he made sure that all boys two years old and younger, or really it says all children, Uh, two years old and younger, uh, would have been killed. And so it's likely, again, as as one of the reasons why they believe Jesus was that age. But Herod had such fear of who Jesus was and what he could become and threatening his own power as king of Judea that I don't want us to skip over the fact that this man murdered and slaughtered children, not only in Bethlehem but in all the coasts around Bethlehem, in, in order to try to kill one. Just a horrific thing. But God was looking out for Jesus and had Joseph escape to Egypt. Now we go to uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 11 uh, for this question. Why was Jesus worshipped and feared? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This baby, and I just want us to take a moment to think about this. This baby, small, fragile human being, was the most worshipped and feared baby that has ever existed and ever lived. And it's simply amazing to me that a baby, a young child that literally at this point in his life could do nothing, could say nothing, was both worshipped and feared to this extent. And that shows you the power of who Jesus was as God made flesh. Now, we're going to skip forward in time because after his birth, we don't have a lot of information about Jesus as a two-year-old or four-year-old or six-year-old. But we do have a story when Jesus is 12 years old that I do want to cover with you in Luke chapter 2. In verse 40, it says, The child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. So the Jewish people had a custom of once a year they celebrated the Passover meal. And we recall the Passover was that saving of the children of Israel in that 10th plague as they were in Egypt. Uh, Their firstborns were saved because they had blood on the door. That was the Passover. And so the Jewish people celebrated this once a year, and Joseph and Mary were no, no exception. They went to Jerusalem with Jesus, and their other children they celebrated. And in this particular year when Jesus was 12, they go to Jerusalem, they celebrate the Passover, and then they're going to return home. In verse 43, it says, When they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. So they go to Jerusalem, they do all of the things that related to the feast, and then they're headed back home, and they start the journey home, and they don't realize that their 12-year-old son Jesus isn't there. He's not with them. Verse 44, it says, But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. So Jesus did something that hopefully you've never done, right? Gone on vacation, gone somewhere, and then ditched your parents and stayed there as they began to trek home. But they get a, a day's journey down the road, and they believe that Jesus is with his aunt and uncles, his cousins, whoever, right? The company. And they start asking their kinfolk, where is Jesus? Who's seen Jesus? Nobody's seen him. He's not there. So they returned to Jerusalem, which means if they have gone a day's journey, now we're two days into Jesus being missing, and they returned to Jerusalem. And as any parent would do, they begin frantically running around searching for Jesus, for their lost son. It says, it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And so it says after three days. So it's slightly unclear whether that means three total days or three days after they return to Jerusalem. But we're somewhere between three and five days that 12 year old Jesus has been missing. And they finally find him in the temple. I don't know if they thought that was the last place that they thought that he would be or what, but it took them a while. They finally go in there, they go into the temple, and they're amazed at what they see. They see this 12 year old boy, their son, sitting there with the doctors. That simply means the teachers of the law. These were the educated Jewish teachers who other people came to for advice and for knowledge of the law. And their 12-year-old son is sitting there, and he's asking them questions. He's listening to their instruction. They're asking him questions, and he is astonishing them with his answers, with his understanding. One of the reasons why this story is important is because it shows us that even at 12 years old, Jesus knew who he was. Jesus was God-made flesh. Jesus wasn't an ordinary 12-year-old boy. He sat in that temple with those doctors of the law, those teachers of the law, and he astonished them with his spirituality and his wisdom. Now, when Joseph and Mary get in there, they do what any parent would do. They were amazed, and his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. In our 21st century language, we we might look at our kid and go, What were you thinking? How in the world could you have done this to us? We've been looking all over for you. We've been worried sick. And listen to his response. He said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wish you not that I must be about my father's business? And I imagine Jesus calmly looking at them and saying, Where did you expect me to be, essentially? Don't you know that I should be about my father's business? Now Joseph, his earthly father, was a carpenter. That's certainly not the business he was talking about, was it? He's talking about the 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 business of his spiritual heavenly father, God the Father. And I think this is probably, while it would have been beneficial for everyone in that room to hear, I think it was primarily, he's probably looking at Mary and telling her that. Mary, who God had sent that angel to speak to and said, you're carrying the eternal king of the eternal kingdom. And she would have known from that point of conception who Jesus was. And so he's looking at his mom and he's going, don't you know this is what I'm here for? This is my purpose. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Mary was listening and paying attention and holding on to all of those things because she knew. Even though everyone else in that room didn't really understand what was happening, they were amazed and astonished, but they didn't really get it. Mary was keeping these things in her heart because she knew and she understood. I also want us to recognize that 12 year old Jesus was subject unto his parents that means he was submissive to them and did the things that his parents told him to do. Now that tells me a couple of things. One, it's funny to me because of any child that has ever existed in this world before, you would think that Jesus had the ultimate trump card. Mom, I am the son of God after all. You know, why should I really have to clean my room? I am God made flesh after all, but he never used that. He was subject unto them. He was submissive. I also figure his siblings probably really loved the fact that he was perfect and sinless and was the perfect obedient child. Um, But he was, because he was God made flesh. And even as a 12-year-old child, as a baby, Mary at least knew that and recognized that, and others would as time goes on. Luke 2.52 says Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This verse confused me for a while, as I thought about it, because I thought if Jesus is God made flesh, if He is God, if He is the embodiment of wisdom, as God is the source of all wisdom, then how could Jesus have increased in wisdom if He is already God? And I think the answer is simple, and I think I was I was overthinking it. But as His physical stature grew, and as Jesus physically matured and developed, He also was spiritually gaining that ability to speak wisdom and to show others the path of God and to fulfill his destiny. If God had delivered that to him all at once, then the baby Jesus in that manger would have jumped up and began to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's simply not how it happened. God allowed his human self to form the way that a normal human body would. And as he did that, as he developed physically, he also developed spiritually and had that wisdom and spirit of God placed upon him. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we see what G- Jesus began to do with himself as he got older. He took on the profession of his earthly father, Joseph, and became a carpenter. It says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. One of the things that makes me smile about this is Jesus was perfect, right? And so to me, it just makes sense that in ev- anything that Jesus did, he would have done it Perfectly. And so I figured that as a carpenter, his work was probably superb. I mean, it's probably the best shelving that you could get anywhere. But it may have taken a really long time because he probably wanted it to be perfect. So you know some of the customers may have been going, it's just shelves. You know, let's, let's get to it. Uh, but Jesus worked as a carpenter and that's what he did with his time until he was about 30 years old. At 30, he's going to change from that profession of his earthly father to the profession he was sent here on earth to do, that of his spiritual father. In Matthew chapter 3, we see a cousin of Jesus named John. We refer to him as John the Baptist. He comes onto the scene, and his job is to prepare the way, to prepare the people to receive Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. It says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his path straight. And so John comes on the scene. He begins, uh, begins to preach and say, I am preparing the way of the Lord that is coming after me. Now, Matthew 3, verse 4 gives us a, gives us a description of what John looked like. And he's a very, very interesting guy. It says, The same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts. And wild honey. Now that's not a guy that you see every day, even in that time period and in that area. And so he would have been uh, an interesting, different-looking guy that everybody notices. And yet he begins to preach this spiritual message that people are listening to. It says, "Then went out uh, went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region roundabout, and were baptized of him in Jordan confessing their sins." So John began to preach. And he began to preach that the Lord is coming, that the kingdom is coming, and the king of that kingdom is coming. And he's preparing the way for that Lord. And he begins to baptize people, and these people are confessing their sins. And this was a baptism of repentance, but it was also a baptism for the remission of their sins. In fact, we see in Mark or in Luke chapter three, verse three, says he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So I don't want us to miss that. That John was preaching baptism. And yes, it's a different baptism because later Jesus became who we are baptized into. And we know that we can no longer use the baptism of John, but we use the baptism of Christ as our Lord and Savior. But John was baptizing people, and their sins were being forgiven. Their sins were being remitted. And he was preparing them, I believe, for that new instruction of baptism for salvation that Jesus was bringing as part of that new covenant. And so as John is out there and he's doing his baptizing, In his uh, leathern girdle, in his camel's hair, eating his meat and and, uh, honey and wild locusts, he is approached by Jesus at 30 years old. Jesus is 30, and he walks up to John, and there are people around that are being baptized, and he tells John that he wants him to baptize him. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he suffered him. The Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, comes before John and says, I want you to baptize me. John has the reaction that I would guess any of us here would have. You don't need to be baptized. Baptism is for the remission of sins. You are the sinless Son of God. I need to be baptized of you. If either one of us here need to be baptized, it's me, the human being that has sin. And Jesus says, no, I need you to baptize me because we need to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean, fulfill all righteousness? It's not a very clear answer to us as we contemplate why Jesus needed to be baptized even though he was sinless. And I believe that there's a couple of, of main reasons why Jesus was baptized. But the first, in that fulfilling all righteousness, I believe that simply means to obey all the commands of God and carry out all the things that God is instructing people to do. And so even though he is sinless and doesn't need to be forgiven of sins, he is still fulfilling the same command that he's about to give everyone else in being baptized. Secondly, I think this was a marking point at 30 years old, to show people that he was now beginning his ministry, that he was taking on that mission of preaching the kingdom of heaven. And this was a, a, not a show in the prideful sense, but it was a, a, a marking point, a checkpoint to show people that it's now begun. And so Jesus goes, and John takes him, he suffers him, he baptizes him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So as Jesus comes up out of that water, God makes it clear and makes it known to everyone that's there that this is Jesus, this is his Son, and that he is embarking on this mission to preach this kingdom, that he is well pleased in him. Now, the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It's interesting. But there's a couple of things. One is uh, a false teaching that I want to mention here. There are some people that believe that the spirit coming down descending like a dove and lighting on him is him becoming Jesus. This doctrine is known as adoptionism. And they believe that up to this point, Jesus wasn't really God, that he was a simple human person. And then at 30 years old, at his baptism, the spirit of God comes down upon him, and now he is Jesus, God made flesh. I think in our lesson and our studies today already, we can see that that's not true with the worship and fear that the baby Jesus struck in people, with the astonishing answers that the 12-year-old boy gave to the teachers of the law in the temple. It's clear that this was no ordinary child, no human being. This was God made flesh. But I believe that the spirit coming down upon him served two purposes. One, as a further show from God that this is my beloved son. But two, I connect this to Acts 2 and Acts 10. If you remember what happens in Acts 2 and Acts 10, God sends the Spirit down. First in Acts 2, on Peter and the apostles as they begin to preach. And the people are saying, Are these men drunk? What's going on? They're speaking in our own language. And and Peter gets up and he says, No, we're not drunk. It's the you know uh, third hour of the day, it's nine o'clock in the morning, we're not we're not drunk. This is the power of God. This is what God prophesied. And that spirit descended down in Acts chapter two to show that the message that the apostles were about to preach was from God and that they were accepted of God. In Acts chapter 10, God sent the Spirit down upon the Gentiles to show that they could be baptized and accepted of God. And here he sends the Spirit down upon Jesus, I believe, to show the people that this is Jesus, the Son of God, and that what he is preaching and teaching is God-ordained, that he is God-made flesh. And so why the dove? That's another discussion that we could have. Um, that's, that's an interesting one. But I believe that this is simply God saying, this is Jesus, he is my son, my spirit is in him. In Matthew 4, verse 1, 1 and 2, after Jesus is baptized, he is taken into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. It says, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. Now this fast for 40 days And 40 nights. This was a fast from all food. Luke chapter 4 tells us that he did eat nothing. So some people have tried to cheapen it and say, well, he only didn't eat during the day, but he ate at night. And Luke tells us he did eat nothing during those 40 days. Now, nothing is said about water, so it's very, very likely Jesus was drinking water this entire time, uh, but he did not eat for those 40 days. Now, one of the things that people look at with this temptation is they say, well, Jesus was God. So it would have been easy for him to go 40 days without food. He simply had to draw on his powers as God to get through it. And so it's not really a, a anything special or spectacular that he's done here because he's God. But very clearly we're told that afterward he hungered. And then Satan is going to introduce his first temptation. And that temptation is this. When the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so my point is this. If Jesus had drawn on his godly power, so to speak, to get him through this 40-day fast, it wouldn't have been a true temptation. It wouldn't have been a true test. He wouldn't have really suffered anything. But in fact, he, as a human being, suffered through these 40 days for a reason. Because after those 40 days, his body was starved with hunger. And so when Satan came to him and said, if you're really the son of God, command that these stones be turned to bread, that temptation was real. And Jesus wanted it because he was hungry, because he hadn't eaten in 40 days. And yet he was able to restrain himself and say no and tell Satan that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. But Satan wasn't done with him. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou shalt shalt dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And so again, he's playing to his Godhead, his powers. He's saying, cast yourself down because God's not going to let anything happen to you. He's tempting him, he's testing him, and Jesus passes that test as well. And then there's a third one that the devil gives to him. He says, again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. There's a couple interesting things I want to point out here. One is that Satan in this time period in Jesus' life, had more power and ability to disrupt human life than he does today. The reason for that is what Jesus accomplished ultimately on the cross. And Jesus came back after his death and his resurrection and said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. But before that point, Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. We see in the days of Jesus in the Gospels, people that are afflicted with devils being possessed, terrible things happening, Satan having a lot of power in that time period because Jesus had not yet conquered him and chained him for that everlasting darkness. And so at this point, Satan had the ability to give Jesus these things. And that's what's interesting to me, is that if he had said, all these things will I give thee, these kingdoms of the world and he didn't have that power, all Jesus would have had to do was go, those are gods. You don't have them anyway. But he didn't. Satan was the ruler of the world at this point, the prince of the power of the air. He ruled these kingdoms, and he had them to give. And so he tempted Jesus and said, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you these kingdoms. I'll make you the ruler here underneath me. But Jesus doesn't fall for that. And he says, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus knows that there's coming a day when he will crush the power of Satan, and Satan will no longer be the prince of the power of the air here. He will no longer have dominion here because Jesus will be given all power in heaven and on earth. And so he passes these tests, and after this, the devil leaves him. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. These angels did not come to him until he had passed these tests. This was his time of proving that he was ready that he was able to suffer and still do what needed to be done because the next three years of his life were going to be grueling. And it was going to end with ultimately a suffering and a death that was more unimaginably horrific than anything else most of us could imagine experiencing. And if he could suffer through these 40 days of hunger and these trials and these temptations by Satan, then he would be able to suffer through the next three years and the crucifixion and death that was to come. And so he proved himself worthy as God made flesh, ready to begin that ministry. And so finally, as we begin to close this evening, we're going to talk about the 12 men that Jesus decided to call to follow him as he begins this ministry. In John 1, verse 40, it says, One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, one of the most fascinating parts about this Peter-Andrew story is that Peter is the more well-known of the two brothers. Peter is the one in Acts 2 that gets up and he preaches that gospel sermon. 3,000 people are baptized and souls are saved that day, added to the Lord's kingdom through the sermon that Peter preached. But before Peter ever met or knew Jesus, there was Andrew, his brother. Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. And when Andrew realized that Jesus was here and beginning his ministry, he brought his brother Peter to meet him. And so that begins their story of being followers of Jesus. Matthew or Mark 3, verse 14 says, "...he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James." And he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into a house. And so Jesus, he has been baptized. He has passed the test and the trials of Satan. And now he has chosen the 12 men who are going to walk with him over these next three years. And of course, we recognize that it says Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. This is, of course, Matthew or Mark, rather, writing at a much later period of time after all these events have happened. So, of course, at this time, they don't know that Judas would become the betrayer. These are the 12 men that are going to spend every day and night, essentially, with Jesus, listening to him, hearing him teach, and watching him perform the miracles that he does. And so Mark chapter 1, verse 14 says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What time? What time is fulfilled? The time that has been prophesied of over and over and over by those Old Testament prophets that we talked about yesterday. I think this would have immediately drawn out Daniel 2 and verse 44. Where it says, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, it's time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And tomorrow as we continue our series, we're going to look at the miracles of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus as he works uh, his three-year ministry as God made flesh here on earth. Tonight you may be here and you may not be a member of Christ's kingdom. And if you're not, then I want you to know tonight that it's the most important decision that you can make. To be a follower of Jesus like these 12 men were. To be a follower of Jesus now means to have salvation. That was his purpose. That's why he came. And we're going to talk more about that, of course, this week. But tonight you have an opportunity to obey the gospel, to believe in Jesus, confess his name, repent of your sins, and be baptized. As those people were baptized by John for their remission of sins, you can be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. If you're here and there's another issue that we can help you with, we want to do that as your church family. If we can help you in any way, please come sit on the front row as we stand and sing.